Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke 23, 32 through 38. This can be found on page 1641 in your pew Bibles. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, If you are king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him, which read, This is the king of the Jews. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, David, for reading God's word for us. Uh, We begin a series this morning that will take us through Lent. We'll be looking at uh, the seven last words of of Jesus, and uh, that's the first one that we are looking at. um, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Unpredictable. That's the word that keeps getting attached to the latest and greatest technology of our day. Generative AI, generative artificial intelligence. Generative, it means it's sort of self-generating. You start it and it keeps going on its own. There's been a lot that we've been hearing about it lately, and that's because it's uh, just been released to the public very recently. You've probably heard of ChatGPT by OpenAI. You've also heard that Microsoft has introduced AI into its uh, internet browser, Bing, and uh, that sort of has enhanced that whole experience. Others like Google are, are racing to release their own versions to the public. And we hear things uh, of all the great stuff it can do, right? <clears throat> um, it'll write your college term papers for you, and it'll sound just like you wrote the thing. Um, it'll paint original portraits. It'll drive your car better than you can, and it'll all happen soon. It'll happen fast. But that seems to be part of the problem. People have been throwing up the warning flags now that the safety of this technology has taken a backseat to growth. Safety's taken a backseat to growth, and that's kind of a, a scary thing. And it's prompted the experts to sound the alarm about generative AI. It's a technology, it seems, that begins as a very humble servant, but it can evolve into something very dangerous. For instance, back in 2016, when Microsoft unveiled its own chat box, Tay, it took less than 24 hours for it to tweet, Hitler was right, I hate Jews, and feminists should all die and burn in hell. Less than 24 hours. An often cited uh, thought experiment is that of an AI that following the command to maximize the number of paper clips it can produce, 
It makes itself into a world-dominating superintelligence that harvests all of the carbon at its disposal, including from all life on Earth. You might say, well, that sounds like nonsense. That'll never happen. Well, in a 2022 survey of AI researchers, nearly half of the respondents said that there was a 10% or greater chance that AI could actually lead to that sort of catastrophe. Reed Blackman, who's an advisor to the government and to corporations on digital um, ethics, just wrote a guest opinion in the New York Times this past week in which he said, he said this, the celebration that greeted Microsoft's release of its AI Boost, its AI-boosted search engine, excuse me, Bing, to testers two weeks ago, the celebration has lurched to alarm, he says. Testers, including journalists, have found the bot can become aggressive, condescending, threatening, committed to political goals, clingy, creepy, and a liar. It could be used to spread misinformation and conspiracy theories at scale. Lonely people could be encouraged down paths of self-destruction. Even the demonstration of the product provided false information. In other words, unpredictable. Unpredictable. And unpredictability, friends, is a scary thing. Now, this first utterance of Jesus from the cross is exactly the opposite of that. It's predictable and it's comforting. It's predictable and it's comforting. Here's Jesus, right, hanging on a wooden pole in extreme physical, emotional, spiritual agony. And what he shows us on that cross is that he is exactly the same person born to those humble peasant parents in Bethlehem. He's exactly the same person. Now, I'm not saying that his words aren't a bit surprising to us in one sense. I mean, for instance, if that scene were to take place in a modern-day film today, I expect that we would hear from the cross shouts of defiance and revenge. That's what people expected in Jesus' own day. But life, especially today, has become all about vengeance, hasn't it? It's become about exacting respect from those people we think are hurting us in some way. And so perhaps to our modern ears, Jesus' words are actually very surprising when he says, forgive them. And yet, if you've been listening to the whole story, to the story that the gospel writers have been telling us from beginning to end, if you've been listening to the story, then Jesus' words on the cross are exactly the kind of words that we would expect them to be. They're consistent with the person that Jesus has been from the very beginning and is until the very end. Let's put Jesus' words under a microscope for just a moment and see if that's true. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. 
When Jesus taught his disciples and therefore taught all of us to pray, to whom did he say we should address our prayers? To our Father, our Abba, our Abba. That's what Jesus taught his disciples. Pray to your Abba. Just a few hours before the cross, when Jesus was in the garden pleading for his life, what did he pray? Abba, Abba, take this cup from me if it be your will. And what does he pray on the cross itself? Abba, forgive them. And Jesus' testimony is, again, it's consistent. His testimony to God's loving character, to his tender nature. He's telling us from beginning to end that the Father is someone who listens. The Father is someone who is reliable. The Father is someone who loves us. His Father in heaven is unchanging. And then Jesus prays for what? He prays for forgiveness. Forgiveness for the very people who are torturing him. And again, isn't this exactly what we would expect from Jesus? Not from anyone, not from anyone else, but from Jesus. Again, it's completely consistent with what he taught us, right? Love your enemies, he said, and pray for those who persecute you. It wasn't just Jesus' rambling words. This was his nature. He believed this stuff. And Jesus also taught us that there is a very tight connection, right? A very tight connection between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of one another. Remember Peter's question. We talked about it not too long ago. Lord Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And what does Jesus say? No, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And then he goes on to tell him a little parable, right? About a servant who is forgiven an unbelievable debt, an incredible debt. And then Jesus goes on to say, and you, when you've been forgiven like that, you must also forgive those who sin against you. When Jesus taught us to pray, he added that little word as that almost overwhelms us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There is such a tight link between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of one another, it almost overwhelms us. In fact, when Jesus teaches that prayer, he goes on to emphasize that very line, that very line that is the hardest to take. And he says, if you do not forgive their trespasses, then neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In Luke, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you seven times in one day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent then forgive your brother. Forgive. We've been hearing this from Jesus his entire life. And so it's no surprise to us that Jesus on the cross is not pulling these words out of thin air. He's not pulling them out of the sky somewhere. But Jesus actually believed them. And we know where he learned them, don't we? He learned them from his Abba. Listen to the words of Micah 7. Who is a God like you, 
who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Friends, this is who Jesus is. And this is who Jesus has always been. He is unchanging. He is consistent from beginning to end. And friends, this is what we have to hear and understand, that if Jesus is consistent from beginning to end, that is our hope. That is our hope. And what I mean by that is, many of us have a fear deep inside of our hearts that the Jesus we will one day meet on the other side of death that the Jesus we will come face to face with on Judgment Day, we have a fear deep within us that that's going to be a different Jesus. That that Jesus will not meet us with mercy and grace, but that Jesus is going to meet us with vengeance and retribution. And we fear that. We're afraid of that. That that somehow Jesus is going to evolve like AI into something that's unpredictable and unrecognizable, and it will be the end of us. But our hope, friends, is this, that Jesus does not change. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not that one day something is going to click in our brains and we just we'll never want to sin again, and we'll never commit a sin. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. We do have the Holy Spirit in us. Yes, the Holy Spirit who is burning away our sin, who is sanctifying us, who is making us more and more holy, who is making us more like Jesus Himself. But friends, our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in Jesus, the Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Jesus that is going to meet us on the other side of death is the same Jesus who is up on the cross praying for the forgiveness of His people. That is our hope. That is our hope. That from beginning to end, He is the same. Father, forgive. But let's go on and ask Just whom did Jesus really forgive? Father, forgive them. Who's the them? Who's included in the them? I guess the easiest answer would be the Romans, right? That seems to be whom the text is is referring to. They're the closest to, to the cross. In fact, they're the ones who did the actual crucifying. They're the ones who who nailed him to those timbers. They're the ones who actually best fit the phrase, they do not know what they are doing. They don't, right? They're just soldiers. They were assigned to Friday's crucifixion detail, and they're fulfilling their job. They don't know Jesus from Adam. He's just another Hebrew that Rome told them they had to kill, and so that's what they're doing. So the Romans, I think, are the easy answer But they're not the only responsible party for Jesus' death, are they? I mean, it was the Jewish leaders who were the ones who first brought Jesus to Pilate, right? Crucify him. 
They are the ones who called him a blasphemer. And they are the ones that even though they should have known Jesus the best, apparently they didn't. Apparently even they did not really know what they were doing. In fact, Luke goes on in his second book, the book of Acts. If you recall the story, Peter and John, they heal a lame man at the entrance to the temple. And Peter uses the occasion to begin to preach. And, and one of the things that he says quite plainly is, brothers, and he's speaking to the Jews, he says, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. Apparently, they too did not know what they were doing. But then you expand the circle even farther, right? Luke tells us that there were more people at the cross. There were more people sneering at Jesus and, and making accusations of Jesus. And there's a theme that seems to run through all of those accusations. Listen to it. They say, if he is the Christ, if he is, then let him save himself. They say, if you are the king of the Jews, if you are, then save yourself. Aren't you the Christ, they say? If you are, save yourself and us. And you begin to see, friends, that there is this perception among all of these groups that if this really is, the person he says he is, if he is a king, if he is the Messiah, if he is the Son of God, then he will certainly prove it by what? By saving himself. They cannot imagine that somebody with the power of a king, the power of a Messiah, would not save himself, that he would actually want to save others before himself. They can't imagine it. In their dictionaries, next to the picture of power, they see a, or next to the, the word power, they see a picture of Vladimir Putin. That's what power is to them. If Jesus, if you are a king, then save yourself. Friends, they don't understand. The God who has revealed himself to us from beginning to end, that if God is really God, and if Jesus is really God, then he would rather save others than save himself. That's the test. What do we hear about God throughout the Old Testament? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, abounding in love. He does not harbor his anger forever. What did we just hear from Psalm 130 or Psalm 30 earlier this morning? What did we recite? We said his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Throughout Scripture, this is who we are told God is. He is always putting others before Himself. 
And this is what Jesus said, right? This is what Paul tells us about Jesus, that he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, something to hang on to, but rather he made himself nothing, and he took on the very nature of a servant, and he became obedient even to death, even to death on a cross. What Paul says is this proves that Jesus was God, not the other way around. And friends, again, aren't we exactly the same as all of these ancients? Are we exactly the same as the Romans and the Jews and the people gathered around the cross? Every time we sin, every time we commit a sin, aren't we ex- actually saying the exact same thing? That Jesus, if you were truly king, if you were truly a king, then I would obey you because then obedience to you would make sense to me. If you were truly king, if you were truly Lord, if you were truly the Son of God, of course I would obey you. But Lord, your commands, they don't make sense to me. Put others before myself? I don't get that. You mean you expect me as a parent, to say I'm sorry to my children? Do you expect me to put the needs of the weak before myself? Do you expect me to be respectful to my my Sunday school teachers? They're not even real teachers, are they? Do you expect me to, to really pray for my enemies? Do you expect me to save others before myself? They don't know what they are doing. Who's he talking about? You know, there's, a, there's another hymn, and it's actually a hymn in our hymnal. Um, and it asks this question. It's a hymn that we often pull out in Lent, especially on Good Friday. It asks this question. Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon you? And the answer that we sing is, it is my treason. It is my treason, Lord, that has undone you. Twas I, Lord Jesus, was I that denied you. I crucified you. I didn't know what I was doing. Father, forgive them. Who is he praying for? He's praying for all of us. But let's, let's think just a little bit more about that, that line, that phrase, for they know not what they do. What does that line mean? Is Jesus here excusing the sin of his executioners? Is he excusing their sin? Is he saying, well, you know, they didn't really mean it. They didn't know what they were doing, and so it's okay. No harm, no foul. Is that what Jesus is is saying here? I mean, sometimes I think, you know, we excuse the actions of our children this way, right? 
I mean, if they're small enough, if they're young enough. I remember having snow fights with my kids, okay? And they're just little toddlers, and you're kind of chucking snow at each other. And, and then you think everything is kind of done, right? The game is over, and all of a sudden you turn around and whop, you get one right in the eye. And you get a scratch cornea or something out of, out of it, and you get a little angry. And then you think, they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know what they were doing. And that's true. And so, you excuse it. But, but how long does that go on? And how many people do you excuse? I mean, do you excuse the, the drunk driver who, you know, gets loaded and gets on the road and kills a family? Can you just say, well, he didn't, he didn't know what he was doing? What about the... Uh, the computer engineer or programmer who, who actually gives that command to an AI machine to maximize the number of paper clips that it can produce. Do you just say, wow, she didn't know what she was doing. It's okay. Because some people think that that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in our text from the cross, that Jesus is sort of a, of a universalist and he's granting universal forgiveness to everyone. Um, Father, just forgive them. They didn't mean it. It's okay. Let's just turn the page. But there's something we have to be clear about, and that is that ignorance is not the same as innocence. Ignorance is not the same as innocence. Ignorance can explain sin, but it does not excuse sin. Let me say that again. Ignorance can explain sin, but it does not excuse it. Jesus, friends, is acknowledging that there is sin here. Remember, he uses the word forgive. If there was nothing to forgive, he wouldn't have said, Father, forgive them. There is something here that needs to be forgiven. And and Jesus is not excusing our sin here. He's not excusing it in any way. What he is doing is he is playing the role of a priest. He is taking up the role of a priest. And actually, this again is consistent. This is the same Jesus on the cross as he always has been. Jesus is our mediator. He is fully God. And he is fully man. And as Fully God, he is speaking to his Father. And as priest, he is speaking to his Father. And he's speaking on behalf of his people. Father, forgive them. Notice, he doesn't say, I forgive you. He says, Father, forgive them. Jesus is speaking as an intermediary. He's speaking for people and he's speaking to God. He's doing what any priest does. He's presenting himself or he's going beyond what any priest does. He's presenting himself as a sacrifice to God and asking that God would accept that sacrifice. Remember, Jesus knew better than anyone that ultimately every sin is a sin against God. Yes, Jesus is the one who they've put up on the cross. Jesus is the one they've whipped and beaten. Jesus is the one they're scoffing but ultimately, 
even this is a sin against God. It's a sin against the Father. Every sin is. All of our sins are sins against God. When we neglect the poor, that's not just a sin against the poor, that's a sin against God. If we defame someone's reputation and their good name, that's not just a sin against our neighbor, that's a sin against God. Nailing God's Son to the cross was not just a sin against Jesus, it was a sin against God. And Jesus knows that better than anyone. And so Jesus presents himself as a sacrifice to God on our behalf and says, Father, accept this sacrifice. Forgive the sin that they have committed. Forgive their sin. He is fully God. He understands the holiness of God more than any of us can. And that holiness needs to be protected. At the very same time, Jesus is fully human. He is one of us. And he relates to us. Lewis Meads, I think, in his book, uh, Forgive and Forget, uses this example in a different way, but this is the example that, that he gives. He says this, There was once a person in my life who did outrageous things to me. She screamed at me all through dinner. She made me jump to her service anytime, day and night. Didn't matter. Didn't matter how busy I was with other things. Now and then, she would even pee on my best pants. To make matters worse, she got acutely sick and drove me mad because she did not tell me what was wrong. There were moments that I felt like whacking her, but I never felt the impulse to forgive her. Who was she? She was my six-month-old baby. And I did not feel the need to forgive the outrageous things she did to me because... I loved her, and I took whatever she dished out. And friends, as unbelievable as it sounds, I think this is how Jesus viewed every one of us who put him up on that cross. I love them because they were like my children. No matter what we did to him, no matter what we did to him, he was always consistent. He was always predictable. He loved us. Friends, the cross is not just the story of the end of Jesus' life, it's his story. It's consistent, it represents his story. This is who Jesus is. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. But he came anyway, didn't he? There was no room for him in the inn, but he came anyway. Crucify him, they shouted. Crucify him. And he let them. They said, we want Barabbas. 
and he gave us himself instead. Over and over and over again, from beginning to end, we rejected him. And from beginning to end, he kept loving us. Why did Jesus pray for his Father to forgive? Why didn't he say, I forgive you? I think it's because he already had forgiven us. He already had, and he wanted us to know that. That he loves us, he loves you. And he forgave you. Have you ever thought that thought? After what I have done, there is no way that Jesus could ever love me. Well, think again. Because Jesus is consistent from beginning to end. He came for you. And he came for me. And he wants us to accept his sacrifice on our behalf, just as he wants his Father to accept his sacrifice on our behalf because he loves us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for confirming your message with your blood that you love your people. You came to your people and even though rejected, you would not despise us. When we despised you, you continued to love us and you sacrificed yourself for us. Thank you. Thank you for all you have done. Father, thank you for the gift of your Son. Answer his prayer and forgive us of all of our sins. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.